Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing well, other than, like I just told you, in the process of removing my beard, I removed too much, and now I'm I look different. So if anyone sees me on video, <laughs> I will look different. Part of it is I wanted to trim it closer so that my mask will fit better, uh-huh. but um, now it's very short. So it grows back. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, about to say, hair grows back. It's all right. I remember one of my uh, first encounters with you, you invited me to your, uh, uh, what was it, your ordination to the Melchizedek Priesthood. Like, I don't know if that was like three years ago or whenever it was. But I remember showing up to church and I was seeing I saw you were blessing the sacrament, but I didn't recognize you. I was like, that's not Derek. Derek has a beard. <laughs> Maybe what I should do is is uh, wear, wear those headbands like the Nephites do. Yeah, I see them in the paintings. OK, <laughs> that's how we'll ever uh, recognize the three Nephites is if you've got these guys in suits and ties and then they have headbands. <laughs> Other than that, you uh, doing all right. Other than your beard malfunction. <laughs> Yeah, I have all this time to learn and study, and maybe I need a little bit more structure to things, but that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you? Anything new in your life? Oh, gosh. I did finish uh, an audio book this past little while. Like, I finished narrating one. Yo, it was just super uncomfortable, man, because, like, I-, I told you, man, I'm carving out this niche where people keep wanting me to do erotic fiction and stuff, and this last book I did did not have... It, it wasn't erotic fiction, but, like, there were some, like, steamy parts in it, and I was just hella uncomfortable trying to get through this book. Uh, that was basically the most excitement I've had this past week was finishing that <laughs> uh, finishing that audiobook. And now I got – I'm back to the grind of trying to find more work. <laughs> Maybe we should cut this out before it gets to the people. <laughs> Man, you're such, you such a bore, bro. Like, anyway <laughs> – just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so we are in... The Book of Mosiah today, chapters 4 through 6. This is going to be the second half of King Benjamin's sermon slash coronation ceremony for the next King Mosiah. Derek, is there any historical context that you want to give to this particular reading before we dive into the content? Yeah, there's a a couple of things that I want to remind our listeners about and sort of two things about reading the text. One is to do a slow reading. I know that uh, this is something we learned, especially from Dr. Fatima Saleh, about make sure you go through and like ask questions about the text. Like, why is it phrased that way? And, and then the second thing is to bring your full selves to the text. And going through the text this week, I noticed some things that I had never noticed before because I was going through it slowly and and trying to build these connections. And one of the connections I made was to the coronation scene in Black Panther. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, Oh, I do want to just say that coronation, coronation comes from the Latin word corona, which means crown. So I'm totally relevant. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) Okay, so the coronation scene in Wakanda is very brief. Uh, This is after the 
the challenge with M'Baku. Uh, T'Challa uh, wins and then gets this claw necklace, and um, then he's presented to the people as this is your king. And then everyone's happy, and it's the uh, some of the things that I noticed there is one that it's very much a communal thing. This isn't just about uh, what happens to this one person. It's about what happens to the whole community. And we get some of this in the whole narration around what happens to the people when they hear Mosiah, uh, how this is, uh, how King Benjamin narrates the whole uh, his whole sermon, and then how he. Cor uh, basically passes over the kingdom to his son Mosiah. I think you really get this whole communal buy-in with the covenant, which you see in Wakanda as well. Um, another thing you notice, there's the conferral of ritual objects. You've got the, in Europe, you have the conferral of a crown, a scepter, an orb, um, and in Wakanda, you have the conferral of that necklace. And we see that you get some sacred and traditional objects passed down to Mosiah, including the plates of brass, which I think is really important. I didn't even notice that until I read this this time. And First uh, Nephi 5, verse 11, says very clearly that the five books of Moses were on these plates of brass. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from from some of the legal materials on poverty and economics in the five books of Moses. So here is what I'd like to say about um, the five books of Moses. I want to start out by talking because we're doing a coronation thing. I won't read these texts. I'll just summarize them. But in Deuteronomy 17, we've got some legislation around the choosing of a king. The king should be chosen from among thy brethren, it says, and not from a stranger, which I think is really relevant to what's going on here in Mosiah because You've got someone from among the people. I really think that both Benjamin and his son Mosiah really were in it with the people. I think that's very clear in the narrative. All right. The Deuteronomy 17 text says, He shall not multiply horses to himself. It also says, he shall um, Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So we've got these uh, provisions in here that prevent the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of power on behalf of kings. It, there's, there is an egalitarian sense that Benjamin really brings out in his sermon. We talked about this last time, the democratization. Yeah. yeah. I just want to name that as there's, there's structural things in place here. Um, so many people, even within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, think about poverty as an individual charitable handout thing, like, oh, one person privately gives this other poor person just a, some, some change. Uh -huh. But I really like how when you look at what would have been on the plates of brass, there's a lot of structural uh, and institutional uh, organization around, around how you do economics and poverty here. It's not just uh -huh. a private handout. And yeah. a, a good example of this is the, uh, the sabbatical year. And in the best text for this is Deuteronomy chapter 15. And basically what happens is that um, when, well, the, the text here permits uh, people to sell themselves into slavery if they become poor. And, uh -huh. and what happens is then uh, on the seventh year, everyone goes free. Debts are completely canceled. Everyone who's been sold into slavery gets restored. And I think that's really cool because there's a whole structural system around this. And then 
Deuteronomy 15 verses 7 and 8 basically says that now this talks about being generous that if there's a poor man who's asking um, then you should not harden your heart you should not shut your hand you should open your hand wide unto him and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth and I think this has a lot of resonance with what we hear in chapter 4 of Mosiah definitely and so yes there should be both individual and structural solutions to poverty and i love how deuteronomy 15 earlier says that there shall be no poor among you right Uh that's how you should arrange things the next text i want to do is leviticus 25 this is the famous jubilee text where every 50 years you have every piece of land that was sold restored to its ancestral family and i think that is so imagine if like that happened in america like you basically Mm -hmm. reset everything so that you do you cancel and you obstruct the intergenerational accumulation of wealth and the intergenerational accumulation of privilege i think that is one of the most devastating things to an economy and leviticus 25 completely prevents that and of Mm -hmm. course verse 10 of leviticus 25 is quoted somewhat out of context on liberty bell because in the 50th year you shall proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto the inhabitants thereof and Ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. And so everyone who had been enslaved, anyone who had sold, all this gets reset. I, I love that idea. And then the fourth text I want to talk about is the gleaning text in Deuteronomy 24. And this has to do with um, a, it, when, when you have agriculture, you're not supposed to harvest to the very edges of everything, and you shouldn't go back twice pick up anything you left behind so that if you have a harvest of wheat or any other grain it also mentions olives and then grapes of the vineyard that you should leave this for the stranger for the fatherless and the widow Mm -hmm. so my point in bringing up all these texts is to say look when king benjamin is imploring the people to live up to the ideals of the law of moses he's actually probably has in mind some of these texts and we shouldn't take the the passages about beggars as oh just a private interaction or transaction that there's structural things in place like the jubilee year the sabbatical Mm -hmm. year and um the gleaning that makes sure that there's a structural solution to preventing intergenerational accumulation of privilege or uh disadvantage and then the last thing i want to say is very interesting because we talked about this last time mosiah 213 King Benjamin is very clear that he has abolished slavery, which I think is cool because within the background of a text on the plates of brass that permits slavery, King Benjamin says no. Like, let me just look at the exact phrasing of this text in in verse, uh, let's see, chapter 2 of Mosiah, verse 13. He says, Neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves of one another. So he basically canceled, he was inspired to cancel all the provisions of slavery to begin with so that people wouldn't sell themselves and have to sell themselves into slavery and that there would be, and this is another structural solution. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting, I noticed this time, that he uses the active voice. He doesn't say, well, I I didn't permit that you should become slaves or it's not, you know, I prevented you from becoming slaves. He says that 
I have neither have I suffered that you make slaves of one another. He puts it in the active voice. He doesn't prohibit people being slaves or being made slaves. He prevents people from making slaves. And I put I think it's brilliant that he puts the accountability and the emphasis in the active voice preventing people from enslaving one another, putting right. the accountability on the people with power and privilege. And I think that yeah. is so brilliant that yeah. um he does this. Yeah. That's really and, cool. And uh so that's kind of the the background of what I wanted to do for Mosiah chapter 4. And I'm curious what you have to say about Mosiah chapter 4 now. Um I got a lot to say about Mosiah chapter 4, but let me let me keep in the same vein for a moment by saying that I picked up on this theme as well that King Benjamin's words are meant to be applied on not just an individual but also, if not primarily, an institutional level. King Benjamin spends about half of Mosiah 4 talking about care for the poor, and poverty is very much an institutional problem. King Benjamin must know that, considering the records you just cited. Um, the biggest causes of poverty have less to do with personal failings of the people that experience it, and much more to do with inequality and marginalization based on uh, race, gender, class, nationality, and other identities. It has much more to do with war. It has much more to do with lack of access to education, jobs, clean water, housing, and spaces where decisions affecting people that are marginalized are made. In America, we have the unique problem of mass incarceration that disproportionately affects black people and serving um, and, and serving time places significant barriers between people and jobs and housing and a lot more. Th th this may be part of what informs his unique counsel in verse 17 after he instructs people right, yeah. to succor those who stand in need of succor. Uh, verse 17, he says, Perhaps thou shalt say, The man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore, I will stay my hand and will not give unto him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance that he may not suffer for this, for his punishments are just. I say unto you, O man, whosoever doeth this, meaning blame uh, the impoverished for their own poverty and withhold their substance because of that, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent and except he repenteth of that which he hath done. He perisheth forever and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. No interest in the kingdom of God. Why would King Benjamin say that? Perhaps the, uh, perhaps the reason that someone is in poverty is irrelevant to King Benjamin. But also perhaps King Benjamin understands the majority of the poor aren't in that situation due to laziness or irresponsibility, which is something that we're conditioned to do here in America. And our failure to understand that and in turn react callously to those who stand in need is not becoming of a disciple of Christ. Be before we get much further in this discussion on how to treat the poor, King Benjamin takes some time to explain that last statement he made in verse 18. He takes some time prior to all this to teach his people how to retain the remission of their sins, which we can see in verse 11. There are more promises, though, and they're transformative. He tells his people that if they remember the greatness of God and their own nothingness, if they remember to humble themselves and call on God daily, and not only 
will they retain a remission of their sins, but they'll be filled with the love of God and grow in the knowledge of him. This is the beginning of a list of transformative consequences of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And one of these is the desire to take care of the poor, which will basically be the rest of the conversation in chapter four. King Benjamin just tied our willingness to care for the poor to our faithfulness to Christ and our love of God. And that should put every single one of us on notice. Yeah, I wanted to add two things. One thing which you which you said that I just want to kind of reiterate is that what he's talking here about economics isn't like a new and completely separate independent topic from this faith in Christ thing. He makes it flow authentically and naturally from yeah. a vivid faith in Christ leads to a changed attitude towards your neighbor and your community. Yes. yes. And I think that is the the linchpin that that keeps these two things together. And so when he's talking about not not being uh not trying to make excuses for not helping the poor i think he's really he's not just talking about helping the panhandler i think he's also talking about participation in public welfare programs yes, because some people absolutely. may not what he says he doesn't he's not just there's nothing here that limits it to private handouts he's also talking about people being reluctant to participate in pooling together resources and having structural right. solutions to the right. to the poverty that also has a structural cause right. so many latter-day right. saints or americans think oh well we don't need the government to do this yeah. and literally if you look at the brass plates that is what happens is the government does have some structural and institutional role to play right. um but in the end, it's the heart of the people and the covenants they've made that, uh, that uh, end up making yeah, the difference. Yeah. So we, we, can understand, we, we can understand that this is an institutional issue. And yet, too many of our Sunday school conversations on Mosiah 4 devolve into discussions about how we treat panhandlers because that seems to be the experience and awareness that many members of the church have concerning the manifestations of poverty. I'm going to humor it real quick, though, because there are some uh, there are some things that King Benjamin says and doesn't say that should enable us to determine how we approach this particular situation. There may be a concern that the money we give people will enable bad behavior. First of all, if you support policies and rhetoric that perpetuate mass incarceration, uh, war and conflict, uh, gender, race and income inequality, or denies climate change, then you don't really get to feel any kind of way about what somebody else may or may not do with your money. To judge what someone in poverty may do with your money while supporting institutions and repeating rhetoric that perpetuates poverty is straight up hypocritical. Straight up. Secondly, it, it may not be mentioned because it doesn't actually matter. Because your substance, according to verse 22, your substance doth not belong to you but to God to whom also your life belongeth so where do we stand with God when we refuse to impart of the substance we don't need to those who are in need and notice that substance doesn't just mean money nor does it king nor does king benjamin stop at substance he says your life belongs to God so if anything about our lives can be spared to enrich the livelihood of others whether that be money uh, time, privilege, influence, etc. Our discipleship should drive us to share those things for the benefit of others. 
Well, what you said reminded me of one of the most important parts of the moral witness that religion has, and it's to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And I think King Benjamin does this really well because he's really afflicting the comfortable. When he talks about the nothingness and you are dust, yeah. he isn't really talking to the people who already know that they're dust. He's talking to the people that have the power and privilege. And later on, when he talks to the poor directly, he doesn't afflict them anymore. He doesn't tell them that they're dust. Right. He, um, and I'm sure we'll get to there, but in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 4, he speaks directly to the poor and basically gives them comfort and says, look, here's a way that you can remain guiltless if you're not able to contribute. Yeah. It's okay. And I think he really did. And I, Jesus did this so well, too. He afflicted the comfortable and comforted the afflicted. And I think this is what so many people get wrong with the LGBT world. Like, we, we don't need any more affliction. You don't need to quote any of those things to us anymore that have that have been used to damage our um, our identity and our connection with God. Like, it's the other way around. Um, we should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted here with uh, any any marginalized. I think so much of what King Benjamin says applies to any marginalized or dispossessed yeah. Uh, population. Yeah, um, I wholeheartedly agree. One, one of the first things I thought of when it came to modern day solutions to poverty was to fight racism. So much of poverty is tied to racism. And I already mentioned the effects of mass incarceration on poverty. Lack of pay equity is obviously tied to misogyny. Poor health and disability often go hand in hand. You you can really make a case that King Benjamin is demanding better treatment for all those on the margins just based on what he says about our treatment of the poor. And much of what we can do for the poor is combating ways that these institutions dispossess these different populations. Yeah, and this gets back to some of the structural solutions that that uh, King Benjamin talked about in uh, chapter yeah. two. Like we already mentioned the abolition of slavery, but he also abolishes dungeons. If you, uh, if anyone didn't listen to us last week, we talked about in uh, two verse twelve that. Um, Let's see. No, it's verse 13. Yeah. Neither have I suffered that ye should be confined in dungeons, nor that ye should make slaves one uh -huh. another. And I think that that's amazing that he has these structural solutions here he, by abolishing the prisons and slavery. That really resets so much of what's going yeah. on here. Yeah. This actually uh, brings me back to verse 13, where one of the transformative promises that King Benjamin makes is that uh, we will not have mind to injure one another, but to live peaceably, and to render to every person their due. Can you imagine an American institution that gives everyone their due? The sick get access to health care. Black folks get reparations. Women get equal pay. Uh, natives get their land back like in the land of Jubilee, or sorry, the year of Jubilee, or at least get paid for it. And poor folks can receive the means to get on their feet, like getting people their due through whatever means we have at our disposal should be a priority for every one of us as Christians. Yeah, and I think the the conversion that goes to the heart ends up having a broader impact than just the the bare economics of it because all of these other issues of privilege and power um, are really there because if you look at what King Benjamin says in uh, 4 verse 26 and 27, he says, I would that ye should impart of your substance to the poor 
every man according to that which he hath, such as... And here's an ex a very uh, a list of examples that's really expansive, but it, it sets up more precedent for other things too, such as feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick. See, that's that's not just a handout. This is like more than just the economics and administering yeah. to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. And I, I read this really slowly and, and noticed this. It's administering to their relief. I think that really applies to the LGBT situation because um, apart from the economics, there's a lot of spiritual support and help that we need that we're not getting. Um, and it says administering to their relief, both spiritually and temporally, according to their wants. So you don't get to uh -huh. dictate like what I yes. need. It's, That's the other thing. You man. need like, to have who gets to determine their needs. Exactly. Who determines their needs? Exactly. It's according to their wants. So what the LGBT community needs is what it needs, and you don't get determined to determine that. It's the community itself. So according to their needs is how you're supposed to administer this relief. And I think that's yeah. the uh, that's part of the where we've gotten stuck on this in the church is many church leaders and members tried to minister to the LGBT community according to what the people in power think is right. And like, no, right. you have to minister right. according to what we need. And basically what we're not asking for anything special. We're asking for just what you take for granted. All of you who are straight or cisgender take certain things to be just part of a normal, full human life. And then people are trying to deny that to my people and think that that's okay. And I, this is completely prohibited by the spirit of what, what King Benjamin is teaching here because, you know, I love how Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And, uh, that's, that's really what the LGBT community is. We're, we're rich in spirit based on all of the resilience that we've had to learn and all of the faith and courage we've had to have to deal with what's been done to us. But there's also a sense in which there's spiritual poverty among the LGBT world. There's, you know, sadness and hopelessness and and depression and just alienation that is completely outside the spirit of what King Benjamin is talking about here. And I would just love to see the church leaders minister both spiritually and temporally to the LGBTQ community according to their wants. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, this really speaks to the need to make sure, like if we're if we're going to do a better job about ministering to the LGBTQ community's needs and wants, they really need to be in positions where the decision makers are. You know what I'm saying? Like this, I really feel like King Benjamin is speaking to that. Like if we're going to effectively minister to those needs, then more LGBTQ folks need to be in positions where decisions made affecting them are made. And I think that feeds right into what it says in verse 27, which is why I really think we benefit from a slow reading of the text. Verse 27 says, And see that all these things are done in wisdom and order. So the order speaks to this sort of structural and institutional element to the solution, right? Because uh -huh. there needs to be an order. That's the whole point of the united order. That's the whole point of having all things in common in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 is these structural and global solutions to to the problem. And it needs to be done in order. And I think having an order behind all of this means, oh, it's not just a private handout here that, that there's you know no structure to. 
But then when it says things are done in wisdom and order, the wisdom that gets to what you just spoke of how the decisions are made. And in order to do anything wisely, you have to have all the input on the table. You have to have mm -hmm. the people closest mm -hmm. to the pain be closest to the power. That's mm -hmm. wisdom right there because otherwise you Absolutely. don't understand the problem. If you don't understand the problem, you can't that's find not wisdom. Mm-hmm. For a population to escape poverty or to escape any of this marginalization, all groups must be involved in the, de in the decision-making process. That's right. wisdom. And then I love what it says going on, the next clause, for it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. And I love that because so many people expect LGBTs to do stuff that we can't do, like, like magically mm. turn yourself straight or magically turn yourself cisgender or magically... You know, marry someone that you're not attracted to and magically it'll turn out all, all right. Like, no, we can't do that. And we're not we're not required to like in the, the gospel never requires anyone to run faster than they have strength. And somehow this double standard is held up that the LGBT community is asked to do stuff that the straight cisgender community would never take on themselves. Like a yoke has been put upon us that the straight community wouldn't even bear themselves, mm -hmm. right? And and like, this is just makes no sense. And which is why I love what King Benjamin does because he never asks anyone to do stuff he wasn't willing mm -hmm. to do himself. He works, you know, with his hands. He doesn't, you know, take people's money and, and live off of the taxes. You know, he gets in it with everyone else. Like he doesn't ask anyone to do anything that he doesn't lead himself in example right. doing, right? And I think that's really... The, the big impact of what King Benjamin does is that he's in it with everyone else. And same, same with King Mosiah later on. And he really gets down with everyone. And um, he, he never asks people to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. And I think that is exactly the, the, the big Christ-like lesson of this whole thing. Which gets into one thing I want to say from chapter 5 is people might not have know that, noticed this without a slow reading. But in a sense... King Benjamin holds himself accountable to the people because he goes out. He checks for understanding. He checks the impact of his words. He sends out people in the middle of his speech at the beginning of chapter 5 and says, Hey, do you understand what I'm saying? Hey, do you believe these words that I've spoken? You know, um, And then they respond, Yes, we believe, and we've had a mighty change in us. So he checks for understanding. He takes his... Uh, he makes himself accountable to the people and say, I want to check to make sure that what I'm saying is getting across. And if I'm not doing it right, right. I need to know. I think that is so beautiful. I'm going to talk about a little bit of this on Sunday with the dialogue Sunday school, but how King Benjamin really models leadership and accountability here. And that's worth applying to, uh, I mean, obviously that's worth applying to what we're doing here in the church. Like, it's 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 very important to be in the thick of it with the people who are not necessarily under you, but the people that you have stewardship over. Like I, I was thinking just now, as you said that, how powerful would it be for President Nelson to be in the thick of it with members of the LGBTQ community? How impactful would it be if he was able to hear more of those voices and see more of the effect of what is happening within the LDS LGBTQ community? Would that perhaps change how his would that perhaps have an effect on his ministry? You know what I'm saying? Uh, would more people from that community in positions of power or closer to leadership change? Like, 
if he was more likely to ask people or send among the people to see if the LGBTQ community is able to vibe with his words or his teachings. And if not, like I, I like to believe that if King Benjamin sent forth his words among the people and people weren't vibing it, that he would have adjusted accordingly. You know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. I would love to see something similar happen in the church with uh, President Nelson having his ear, having more of his ear to the ground concerning this community and being able to adjust accordingly. Because I believe if he had to be in a room full of LGBTQ saints, that things would change very quickly with regard to how he ministers to them. But because that's not happening, those changes aren't exactly on the way anytime soon. So I, 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 I just want to agree with what you said regarding King Benjamin being a great model of leadership because I feel like him being among the people, him being in, in the thick of things has really affected his effectiveness as a leader. Yeah, and I think we got an indication of this. I can't remember which conference talk it was, but just this past conference, someone said that the changes in the temple regarding women were made because they were in dialogue with women. Mm. Like, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember now which which it was, who it was, you know, but someone really said that. It was like, yes, we we counseled with women, we listened to women, we checked for what the impact on women was, and then that prompted us to make these changes, which I think are a significant step. They're only one step, but but at least they're a step in the right direction. That came as a result of dialogue with people in that community. And that's almost how probably every change in the church happens is that because someone in need mm -hmm. makes their request known and someone in power makes themselves available to this person in need. And this is all about what Mosiah chapter two is. Uh, I mean, Mosiah chapter four. Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> and well, two, basically two through four. Um, and I love how, you know, I didn't mention this yet, but one of the biggest narratives that would have been on the plates of brass is the Exodus from Egypt. And that provides so much of the basis for uh, the legal materials in the Torah because I didn't say this but at the end of the text where it talks about gleaning you know make sure you reserve some of your olives and grapes and your grain for the stranger the fatherless and the widow verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 24 says and thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt therefore I command thee to do this thing I think that's so amazing like remember you were slaves in Egypt and that is the narrative that framed all of what what King Benjamin would have would have said to the people. It's this narrative that forms the covenant, this new covenant community that brings them closer to Christ and that changes how they treat one another because they should remember what it was like to be a marginalized and dispossessed people. And knowing that is the entire foundation of how they should treat one another now. Yeah. I wish that the members of the church would remember what it was like to be a persecuted people. Like there was real persecution in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And I wish they would have some of that recollection and, and build empathy for the LGBTQ community um, whose civil rights are de denied, whose uh, dignity is denied, who's kicked out of their families and towns. Like basically everything that happened to the early Latter-day Saints happens to LGBTs. Yeah. We of all churches should be the best allies to LGBTQ. We should be the yes. first people to show exactly. up for LGBTQ folks. We should be the first people to show up for marginalized groups. It was not that long ago 
where we were literally, our people as uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were literally oppressed for our beliefs and driven from state to state, viewed as an ethnic minority and treated as such simply because of our beliefs. We should be the first people showing up for LGBTQ folks. We should be the first people uh, saying Black Lives Matter. We should be the first people that show up and seek for equity, that seek for equal treatment for all people, regardless of their identities. Like, so because we we know that's it. That's in our historical DNA. So why do you think we don't do that? Like, what what happened? Like, why aren't we out there being a leader with saying Black Lives Matter? Like, what happened? Uh, um, gosh, what happened? I I don't know that there's enough time to properly answer that question. And I would defer anyone who's looking for an answer to Paul W. Reeves' book, Religion of a Different Color. I I believe the short answer to that question of what happened is that we forgot our past, which abounds in racialized violence against our people. And we forgot Christ, who specifically taught that God was no respecter of persons. Among other things, which is kind of funny because we're expressly told in the Book of Mormon not to forget either of those things. But it's obviously not funny because there are serious consequences to forgetting our past and forgetting Christ. Just in today's reading, there is a strong implication that not remembering Christ and the goodness of God will take you out of communion with him. We struggle to show up for black folks because we struggle to remember their oppression as well as our own. We struggle to show up for black folks because we struggle to show up for Christ. And that's that that's the best I can do for now. Well, that's pretty much all I had to say about the the text. Yeah, man. Uh, me too. Before we uh, wrap things up, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. All right. By way of announcements, Derek, where can people find us? You can find us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and hopefully only fans. Oh, and gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that bad. <laughs> and you can also find us on beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Our handles, by the way, on Twitter and Instagram are at BTBLDS. Um, Also, a couple things happening. We will be hosting an AMA this Sunday at 6 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. We will also, Derek and I, be teaching the Dialogue Sunday School lesson this Sunday at 12 p.m. So... You'll get a lot of us this Sunday if you want. Like I said, that's uh, 12 p.m. for the Dialogue podcast, a Sunday school, le- or sorry, the Dialogue Sunday school lesson. We'll post a link to that on our social medias. Again, that's at 12 p.m. And then we'll have an AMA on our Facebook page 
at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And that's on Sunday the 19th, right? Yeah, Sunday the 19th. Okay. All right, sweet. Then thanks again for joining us, everybody, till we meet again next week.